Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And I'm here today to share a special episode with y'all. I sat down and had a discussion with Sarah Riggs Amico. She is a candidate for the U.S. Senate and she recently joined the primary aiming to challenge David Perdue for his seat in the Senate in 2020, as opposed to joining that race for the open seat being vacated by Johnny Isaacson at the end of 2019. We got into a wide range of issues in this discussion, but I think one of the most interesting things about Sarah's candidacy is she is one of a handful of Democrats who's running with a very faith-forward message, and we get into a discussion about how faith informs her politics, how it informs her worldview, and how it informs the way in which you treat others and the way in which you put that into action through public policy. We also get into all the wonky stuff that I love, her views on the issues like healthcare and climate change. And I ask her the most important question I think every Senate candidate needs to answer, which is what they want to do about the filibuster. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my discussion with Sarah Riggs Amico, candidate for the U.S. Senate. All right, so joining the podcast is Sarah Riggs Amico. She's a candidate for the U.S. Senate, and she's the executive chairwoman of Jack Cooper. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with your race for lieutenant governor last year or familiar with you, could you just start by describing your background a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. I live in Marietta, Georgia. I have two daughters, uh, Sophia and Ava. They're in first and third grade. They go to public schools out here in Cobb County. Uh, married to a lovely gentleman named Andrea, who was originally from Italy. He became an American citizen about six years ago now. So um, we're a family that includes an immigrant husband and father. Uh, We sort of mix languages, foods, and cultures at our house. My in-laws all still live in Italy. Um, And we love that that sort of connects us to centuries worth of people who have come to this country. Uh, My parents, my grandparents, my sisters, they all live here in West Cobb, although I grew up in southwest Missouri. Um, study political science in undergraduate. Not, the irony is not lost on me. And I did my master's in business administration at the Harvard Business School. I graduated in 2003. So for the last 16 years, I've really spent most of that time building businesses that didn't exist or growing businesses, uh, creating and saving thousands and thousands of jobs. My family bought a trucking company in 2008, right around the time the Great Recession was starting and sort of the economy was collapsing all around us, we bought a company that moves cars. Um, so if you've ever seen those double-decker trucks going down the highway full of cars, that's what we do. And we started with about 100 employees. And today that company has 3,000 employees. We pay for everyone's health insurance premiums for them and their family. We are very proud to be a Teamster company, very pro-union. Um, We provide everything from paid leave for both men and women when you have a new baby, whether that's a birth parent, a foster parent, or an adoption. Uh, We provide paid leave for all of our men and women. And we also, uh, here in Kennesaw, have been experimenting for the last several years with on-site daycare, trying to help solve the childcare conundrum for working families. So we've not only built the business through really tough times in the Great Recession, But we've tried to do it in a way that says investing in people matters and doing the right thing matters. So uh, it's it's been an incredible journey. And in 2018, I had the 
opportunity and honor to be the nominee for the Democratic Party for Lieutenant Governor of Georgia. And during that time, I traveled about, I want to say it's about 150 counties. It was in about 10 months. So (laughs) it was a bit of a whirlwind. I had never run for public office, although I've been a a nearly lifelong student of American government. Um, It was the opportunity of a lifetime. I sat in a lot of living rooms. I saw the incredible uh, warm hearts and just welcoming nature of the people of this state in every single place I traveled. I got about 1.8 million votes as a first-time candidate for office. Uh, got to meet and be endorsed by President Barack Obama. Uh, it was the journey of a lifetime, and obviously was particularly honored to be able to travel the state with Stacey Abrams, who's become a friend, and uh, along with so many of the other candidates last year. So the issue came up, you know, what do you do now? Uh, we, We were so close. We did so much work last year, but we obviously didn't get the outcome we wanted. And for me, it's binary. Um, I'm still very concerned about things like the economic security of families in Georgia, whether they have equal access to opportunity and the real chance to build the kind of American dream my husband came to this country for. Um, I'm concerned about affordable access to health care for our families. And I'm increasingly concerned about our voting rights and election security. So uh, it's binary. Do you stay in the fight or do you do I go back to sort of the normal um, life and business world that I've been in for 16 years? And I decided to uh, dust myself off and get back in the arena, try to do some work for the people of Georgia. So you ran for lieutenant governor last year, and currently in the Senate race against David Perdue, you were the only candidate who has previously run a campaign for statewide office. What lessons did you take from running in that race last year in terms of what you learned and in terms of your belief about whether Democrats can win a statewide election in Georgia in this cycle or or coming ones? Well, first and foremost, Democrats can absolutely win the state of Georgia statewide. Um, you know, we were within uh, about 54,000 votes for Stacey and about 120,000 votes for me. Uh, and that was with an awful lot of shenanigans at the ballot box. Um, there were just tens of thousands of people who had trouble voting, whether that was a signature match issue, whether it was an absentee ballot that wasn't counted or never arrived, uh, whether it was people who simply had to leave a three hour line to vote in certain areas of the state. Uh, whether it was people who were impacted by the 212 polling places that were closed. But what I will say is not only is it winnable, and I think the work that we did over the last couple of years, you know, not just Stacey and I, and certainly her leadership was important, but every candidate on that ballot for the Democrats, you know, wore out their shoe leather talking to voters and and bringing people into the process, hundreds of thousands of first-time voters last year, So, of course, the state's winnable. But the other thing that I learned is that it has to be a campaign about all 159 counties. It's not just about Metro Atlanta. We need to be in North Georgia. We need to be by the coast. We need to be in Middle Georgia and Southwest Georgia. Um, It is important that every nook and cranny of this state feels their voices heard. And it's something that they haven't got right now with David Perdue. The guy's been in office for more than five and a half years. He has yet to hold a single town hall. Um, if I'm elected senator, I plan to hold him in every part of our state on a regular basis. Uh, you know, the thing about Georgians that I love is what I saw across the state 
no matter, you know, what they look like, who they love, how or if they pray, what party they usually vote for. You know, we have a lot of the same hopes for our families. We have a lot of the same um, dreams for the kind of opportunity we want our kids to have. And we have a lot of the same fears about what happens when our leaders fail us. I think we've seen that in everything from the lack of access to health care for so many Georgians. I think we have the third worst uh, rate in the country out of all 50 states for access to health insurance. Um, we've seen it from the healthcare debate to the devastating weight our farmers have had to endure to get hurricane relief from Hurricane Michael almost a year ago. They're just now able to even apply for those funds. So I, I think we have to talk to people in all 159 counties, and we have to continue to expand and engage the electorate. Those are the lessons I learned. So Jack Cooper, the car hauling company where you're executive chairwoman, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection earlier this year prior to your entry in the Senate race. And while Republicans have used this as a cudgel against your candidacy, you've actually pointed to the experience as part of your motivation for taking on Senator Perdue. So what did you learn from the financial difficulties that faced your firm? And how does that inform the way you would approach various economic policy questions as a senator? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, uh, we did have a Chapter 11 filing. It was a pre-negotiated restructuring. So um, on the other side of this, uh, we have saved all 3,000 jobs. We have done that for more than 2,000 union jobs without a single wage concession or health care cut, protecting the retirement benefits of our retirees who are in their union pension plan, um, protecting the proper union retirement for all of our CBA employees. And so um, we were very, very lucky. The company was caught in the middle of this trade war that the Trump administration has pursued, which, if you'll remember, started with steel and aluminum tariffs and has been devastating for American manufacturing. What I think we've learned from that is that nobody wins a trade war, but workers always lose. And my guess is if you were to go ask farmers around the state of Georgia how they feel about the trade war, they'd tell you the same thing. They're certainly not winning it. You know, it, Hurricane Michael did two and a half billion dollars worth of damage in South Georgia. And those farmers not only had to endure the trade war and the effects of commodity prices, um, but then to get the sucker punch on top of that of the hurricane, followed by an absolutely inept process in the U.S. Senate, GOP-led U.S. Senate, under this president um, of getting their hurricane relief, it's devastating. It's not just that people are losing their farms in some instances. It, you know, in many, too many cases, people are literally killing themselves over this. So for me, Yes, this is part of the reason to run for office. Um, my family is one of the lucky ones. Our business and our employees will survive. And we saved thousands of jobs in the process, cut our debt in half, brought in new equity to replace 80% of our trucks in the next five years with brand new equipment for our drivers. They'll be proud to get in and out of that equipment to be a Jack Cooper driver. And we protected our union and our collective bargaining rights because we believe that's essential 
to economic security, to accessing the middle class for millions of families across this country, including the 3,000 families who depend on us for a paycheck. So I believe that in getting into this race, I can give a voice to people all over our state who've been affected by the trade war. And, you know, it's not just the trade war. Um, as a Teamster company, we're part of the Central States Pension Plan, which is one of 1,400 multi-employer pension plans in this country, 125 of which are critical and declining. And that pension liability for my business, you know, which is not small, but it's, it's certainly not GE or General Motors, that pension liability for my business was $2 billion. It's devastating. And I think the saddest part of that for me is that the House of Representatives has already passed the Butch Lewis Act. They've already looked at pension relief. They have a plan. And whether or not you believe it's the right plan, it's at least something that's passed one of the two houses. And rather than take up pension relief, Mitch McConnell, enabled by people like Senator David Perdue, decided to go on vacation rather than take up that legislation at the end of July. They literally went to recess. And the sad thing about it for me is when the tax cut happened in 2017, they were quite happy to work through recess to give wealthy donors and corporations and the 1% at the very, very top of the income scale in this country a tax cut that was fiscally irresponsible. It's driven up our deficit spending 23% year on year. It's definitely going to increase the national debt, particularly in the next 10 years. You know, they, they stayed and they were happy to work through vacation for that. But when it came time to defend the little guy, when it came time to secure the economic futures of working families, they literally went on vacation. That is unacceptable. You know, a pension isn't a giveaway. It's not an entitlement. It's not a gift. This is the money of working people that they have dutifully in invested. It is their money, and they deserve to have it when they retire, as they were promised. And it's not just them paying into it. You know, the employers like me have paid into it, too. So I think by having me in this race, I can certainly draw a heck of a contrast with the GOP leadership in the Senate and with David Perdue specifically. You know, he's had a business that liquidated. He's had a business that filed for Chapter 11 after he fired 7,000 people in a single day. And, you know, he quietly sneaks out the back door and pretends like he had nothing to do with it. That's weak. I would much rather have somebody who saw what was coming like I did, who knew that there was a storm ahead, but, you know, stayed in control of the ship and made sure everybody got to the other side safely. I, I, I have no respect for somebody who will not fulfill their obligation to their workers. So I want to come back to um, this discussion of trade and its impact on Georgia farmers. Um, there was a report recently from the University of Georgia that said that tariffs have largely reversed efforts to create a China market for Georgia peanut products, and that nationally farmers are facing some of the toughest financial circumstances in a decade. You talked a little bit about this earlier, but what is your view of the Trump administration's trade policies and how they've impacted Georgia farmers? And as a senator, what would you do to support the state's largest industry? Yeah, my view is that they're reckless and irresponsible and absolutely tone deaf. Farmers have not been quiet 
about how devastating this has been for their family. Economists have not been quiet about how quickly other countries can replace our capacity, for example, for soybeans, major crop here in Georgia as well. And yes, it took decades to establish some of these markets for our farmers. We have an agricultural industry, not just in Georgia, but nationwide, which is in large part dependent on free access to international markets. And all of that can be wiped away by the hubris of the Trump administration and their unwillingness to see just how devastating this has been. So my view is it needs to stop. My view is that nobody wins a trade war, but the farmers and the workers always lose. And as a senator, I would be a check on this administration's reckless pursuit of the trade war without question. And as a senator, I can also make sure we're not waiting a year to get access to hurricane relief funds that should have been available almost immediately. So there's plenty we can do. We just can't do it with David Perdue in the Senate because the reality is his priority isn't Georgia farmers. It isn't Georgia families. It isn't Georgia voters. He has an audience of one, and it's Donald Trump. So you are among a small group of Democrats that has emphasized their faith in your campaign launch. Let's listen to how you describe this in your launch video. Too many politicians in Washington are not worthy of the faith we've placed in them. They claim to share our values, but their actions betray us. You don't love your neighbor if you shun the poor, the powerless, the least of these. Faith is how I know that nobody should be sick because they're poor or poor because they're sick. That we need to protect and sustain the earth. That we have an obligation to stand up for economic security and social justice, no matter the color of your skin or who you love. So how does your faith inform your view of politics and policy? Yeah, it's a couple of things. The first is how I see right and wrong right? In my faith tradition, how we love our neighbor and how we love one another as humans, whether or not we share the same set of beliefs, is core to how we see the world, right? This The story of the Good Samaritan comes to mind. And the Samaritan and the injured man on the side of the road didn't share the same beliefs. But when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? You know, the point of the story was to say this man who stopped and helped, you know, tangibly assisted a person in need, even when it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, their people, right? Even when it wasn't somebody who worshiped the same way. In fact, in the story, the Jewish man on the side of the road who's injured and the Good Samaritan, by all metrics, should have not even spoken to each other. That would have been criticized in that time. So for me, it's not about anything other, you know, from a public policy standpoint, it's about how do we treat one another? And then I think the second filter is what is right and wrong? It's wrong to refuse to help those in need when we have the ability to do something about it. 
The other prominent example of a Democrat campaigning right now with a focus on their faith has been present has been the presidential campaign of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And Buttigieg was criticized by WSB radio host Eric Erickson, who said that Buttigieg may only have a superficial understanding of Christianity because he is Episcopalian. Erickson later wrote that the Episcopalian Church openly flouts Christian doctrine by ordaining gay and lesbian priests and having leaders who have marched in support of abortion rights. Do you think that people like Erickson get something wrong in connecting their Christian faith with their political views through this focus on LGBTQ people or abortion? Yeah, it's look, it's not for me to criticize anybody's faith. It's funny. I think Eric Erickson was pretty complimentary of our launch video, which I had to admit was a bit of a surprise for me. Um, but I think what Pete Buttigieg is doing is remarkable. I, I mean, he's really hitting on the the Matthew 25 gospel, right? How do we care for the, the least of these? Um, and I think he's absolutely correct to do that. It's exactly what I said in the video. You can't love your neighbor if you shun the poor, the powerless, and the least of these. And I think, you know, look, none of us is running to be your pastor, right? This isn't about me convincing other people. I hope they share my beliefs. This is me opening my heart to voters and saying, this is how I see the world. And no matter what you believe or who you love or what you look like um, or how much money you have, my job in the Senate will be to wake up every day thinking about how I can make your family's lives better, how I can get you more opportunity, um, better voting rights, better access to affordable health care. These are the things I care about. So, you know, look, it's not for me to criticize how anybody deploys their faith. But I would say in the political realm, if you failed to acknowledge you know, particularly for the sort of religious right on uh, Christians, if you fail to acknowledge that Jesus was a man who spent most of his time with people that would have been othered, right, in that era, talking about how we love one another, even if we don't share the same beliefs, talking about how we care for the widow and the orphan, the poor and the disenfranchised, um, you miss the point. And, you know, so I think for me, it's important that we think about representation from all points of view, right? Whether that's people of different faiths, um, different races, different experience, right? We're, we sometimes fall into this trap of believing the only worthwhile experience for somebody to be in public office is having been in public office. And that's just patently false. You know, the the federal government, the state government, local governments, they need a mix of people who have experience in the healthcare industry, teachers, military or police veterans, business people, you know, moms, dads, single, with kids, without kids. A diverse pool of perspective leads to better governance outcomes. It's one of the reasons I feel so passionately about the need to have more women in office. There were only 25 women in the U.S. Senate, and it's not a coincidence that we consistently struggle to put the issues that matter to women and families front and center. I mean, does anybody really believe if we had half of that Senate as women that we'd still be debating things like access to abortion care or birth control? 
I mean, we'd have a solution for paid family leave. We'd have a solution for elder care. You know, so many times women are the caregivers, not just for their kids, but sometimes for aging parents. Um, I think these are issues that would come to the fore in a very productive way. Right now, it's just an underrepresented perspective in the U.S. Senate. And I think we can see that with the Nevada state legislature this year. Look at how many issues like pay equity and reproductive justice that they've been able to address with the first state legislature in the country that was majority female. You know, research consistently shows us female members of Congress bring home more money to their district. Um, In many cases, they might argue that they're more effective legislators. Um, You know, I like to say that women have sort of a pragmatic streak, strong spine and a pragmatic streak. But look, we've seen a lot of folks talking about how much they want more women in office. Well, at the end of the day, there's only one way to get more women into office, and that is to elect more women. And so for me, this conversation around representation matters is particularly acute in a state like Georgia, where we have a very diverse population um, and where we've never once elected a woman to the U.S. Senate. You know, this this year you already have at least two qualified, experienced women running for this office. So let's dive into some policy here. Last year's report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that the world may have as little as 12 years to begin to reach emissions goals in order to stave off the worst effects of climate change. Recently, congressional Democrats signed on to a non-binding Green New Deal resolution. How do you view the Green New Deal? What does the term mean to you? And do you support it or something like it? Yeah, for me... I think the most important thing is it's a noble goal to protect and preserve this planet, right? I'm 40 years old. These are issues that we will deal with in my lifetime. But more importantly for my daughters and hopefully someday grandchildren, this will be the world they live in. And the United Nations and a number of um, research studies have also shown us that by the year 2050, the number one cause of death around the world may well be lack of access to clean water. I mean, think about that. It's something we all take for granted. How many times do you sit in a restaurant with the glass of water that was poured before you ordered your Coca-Cola and not touch it? By the time my oldest daughter is my age, lack of access to clean water may be the number one cause of death around the world. And so um, protecting and preserving this planet is essential. There, you know, there's no backup planet, right? This is it. And it's particularly disturbing to me, again, to go back to the faith conversation. This is something I believe we were charged with doing. We're the caretakers of this planet. Um, and that means being able to build sustainable energy economies. That means being able to build, um, a regulatory environment that both allows businesses to thrive and innovate and grow and create jobs and protects the natural resources um, that we want to leave to our kids and the eco protects the ecosystems that it, particularly here in Georgia, we have so many varied ecosystems around the state. You know, it was one of the best parts of traveling the state last year is just seeing how varied the landscapes are. 
and how beautiful this place we call home really is. And we absolutely have an obligation for that. So, you know, we can get in there and dust up over individual laws or pieces of a policy, but I would sure hope that even people on the other side of the aisle can agree we've got to do something to protect this place we call home. And, and I think I would hope, again, people, regardless of party, can in- agree on the justice aspect of conservation and environmental protection. Um, you know, people of color, marginalized communities, poor folks, and particularly in the South, are bearing the brunt of ecological damage. So, you know, it's not just about our individual responsibility that we bear, but I do think we need something bold, um, something large scale. Uh, And I'm concerned to see the Trump administration has rolled back so many environmental protections, particularly around clean water. Um, They've taken us out of the Paris Climate Accords. And again, to go back to my specific race here, I have never once seen David Perdue stand up to any of it. I've never once heard him tell the president of the United States, global warming will hurt Georgia's largest economic sector, agriculture. Our farmers will bear the brunt of it. We saw it with Hurricane Michael. I've never once heard him talk about what this will do to our coast, where he lives. I mean, it's absolutely crazy the amount of sycophancy that's happening. And I think ultimately in November of 2020, Georgians will have a chance to tell David Perdue that they don't appreciate. He's more interested in what the president thinks about him than about what happens to their family and this planet. So 2019 has been yet another year featuring horrific acts of gun violence in the United States. One such shooting in El Paso, Texas, led presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke to proclaim on a debate stage. If the high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers. When we see that being used against children, And in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15. And that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa and Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. But Republicans seemed about as gleeful as Democrats in the debate hall were a couple of weeks ago over Beto's proclamation. In your view, what constitutes adequate action on guns in Congress, and how will you get the Senate to act? Well, how we get the Senate to act is very straightforward. We elect a Democratic majority, including flipping two U.S. Senate seats right here in Georgia. Take that gavel away from Mitch McConnell who has failed to act on, for example, universal background checks, which has already passed the House. McConnell won't even put it on the floor for a vote. He won't let it be marked up and debated in committee. That's not strength. That's weakness. That's fear that he will finally be exposed uh, for what he is, which is somebody who consistently subverts the will of voters and the people in this country. And look, I tell you this, 
my kids go to public school and in my office, I can look out and see their school from a window. And there is not a day I look at that view without thinking about what would happen if God forbid there were an active shooter. That's not okay. We have accepted these mass shootings in everything from movie theaters to elementary schools to houses of worship. And not once has David Perdue or the GOP or the GOP-led Senate done a damn thing to protect our families from this. Not once. They can't tell us a single action they've taken so that my six-year-old won't have to think about doing red alert drills, that she won't grow up thinking that's normal. They have failed miserably, and they deserve to be voted out of office for it. It's not okay that when I go to my church, we have armed police officers everywhere from the beginning of the parking lot to the entrance to the sanctuary. It's not okay that Jewish synagogues all over the state have had that for years. It's not okay what we've allowed to happen. Weapons of war do not belong on our streets with civilians, and we have to take action. But I got to tell you guys, you know, to anybody who's listening to this, if you're worried about your kids and their school, like my husband and I worry, I can't tell you what it's like to drop off your kids the first day after the most recent school shooting, right? To have to act like it's normal because you don't want them to see that you're upset. But that unsettled anxiety you feel in the pit of your stomach. If you want that feeling to go away to any parents listening to this, if you don't want to have to worry about that again, vote a Democratic majority into the U.S. Senate and let us show people around the world that this country takes your family safety seriously. So Democrats nationally are currently debating what a health care agenda should be for the next Democratic president. And the debate seems to fall along the lines of whether folks believe that there should be a role for private insurance coverage in our health care system. If you're elected to the Senate, would you like to see the chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling insurance? Or would you prefer reforms to the existing system where most people still get their insurance through either their employer or the ACA, Medicare and Medicaid? I think we have to look at all of the options. Personally, I think um, I'm much more concerned right now about the Republicans' consistent efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Um, I'm extremely concerned about what will happen if the Fifth Circuit Court um, throws out the ACA in its entirety at the request of the Trump administration, right? There are tens of millions of people in this country who have pre-existing conditions, who are guaranteed access to health care by that law. And the Trump administration, again, enabled by people like David Perdue, have actively lobbied to throw it out. It's not okay. They have actively lobbied for the court to go out and toss the Affordable Care Act out, and they have not so much as a whisper and a prayer of a replacement. There are, I think, 20 or 30 million Americans that get their insurance through an ACA program for the Republicans to act like it's totally normal for them to throw that out without a replacement to make sure folks have health care and access to health insurance is beyond irresponsible. So for me, 
look, I, I think I would like to see more opportunities for people to be able to buy in to Medicare or Medicaid. I would like to see people who want to keep private health insurance, you know, be able to keep it. But at the same time, we need to provide the kind of competition in the market that will make private insurance companies have to be competitive on price and coverage. And that's sort of how market economics work. And by the way, Republican Party, who's so fond of, quote unquote, market solutions, I would think they'd like that a whole lot. You know, but I live in a state, we all live in a state, probably most of your listeners live in a state here in Georgia, where we've lost, I think it's eight rural hospitals since 2013 and the failure to expand Medicaid. I mean, the idea that we would end Medicaid expansion programs when the Affordable Care Act might be ended by Republicans in the legislature or tossed out by the Fifth Circuit Court is asinine. And it's literally insane. There are hospitals all over our state that are still at risk of closing. That means populations all over the state are losing their access to care. You know, that means women might have to drive an hour to have a baby in a hospital. That's the reason we have the highest maternal mortality rate in the country, which, by the way, I ran a commercial about last year in my campaign. It, this is unacceptable. And by, when you kill those rural hospitals, we're also delivering a death blow to the local economy. It's very hard to bring jobs to a community where folks don't have access to health care. So we got to do better. But it's to me, I think the idea that we have this debate and come up with the best possible solution that the people we send to the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House all over from all over the country, we should be able to have that debate. And the reality is we can't with Republicans in charge of the Senate. They're not interested in the debate. They're not interested in improving the system. They're on a political mission that has nothing to do with your family's well-being. They're on a political mission to throw out the Affordable Care Act, and it's unacceptable. There are, it's a matter of life and death for people all over our state. So sticking with healthcare for a moment here, you've discussed publicly your opposition to Georgia's six-week abortion ban, but I'm interested in how these views apply at the federal level. Would you like to see the policy that blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion services? This is a policy known as the Hyde Amendment. Would you like to see that policy repealed? Look, having federal funds, um, especially for Medicaid, available for abortion care is essential. And the reality is, if you don't, then that means we've created two systems, one in which wealthy folks or people with private insurance have access to their own reproductive rights and freedom, and another one where poor folks don't. I mean, it's just, there's a massive justice component to that. We are not meant to have two systems of justice in this country, one for the haves and one for the have-nots, and too often we do. And this is certainly an aspect of it. So, yes, I support public funding uh, for abortion care. So across all of these issues, whether it's climate change or actions on guns or or bold action on health care, um, 
I know you've you've said in this interview that you would hope people from the other side of the aisle would be open to some of these policies, but a lot of observers believe that the chances of Democrats getting Republican support in any of these areas is basically slim to none. So if you're elected to the Senate, would you like to see the chamber adopt a rules change that would eliminate the filibuster and allow bills to be passed in the Senate with 51 votes? Yeah, I I have to be honest on this one. I understand why people are looking at the filibuster, ending the filibuster as a cure, but it is literally treating the symptom and not the disease. The disease is people who go to Washington, sit in the U.S. Senate, take a paycheck from taxpayers, from working folks, and refuse to do their job. You know, where I would like to see this go instead of changing the rules as a workaround to people who will not do their jobs is that we vote them out. You know, you just said Republicans aren't going to give us purchase on any of these issues, right? There's no foothold. So I have a very straightforward solution. Vote their butts out. They don't deserve to be there. If they won't do the job, most of us aren't allowed to keep our jobs if we won't do them. So I understand the debate. I just don't think it's the right solution. I think the best solution is to put people in that chamber who know it's their job to work on behalf of the American people on every one of these issues. You know, that that's where I would like to see this go. So as we as we near the the end here, I've got one more question for you. Over the weekend, you became the first Georgia Senate candidate to call for the impeachment of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh amidst previously undisclosed allegations of sexual misconduct revealed by New York Times reporters. But Republicans have pointed to a late editor's note in the New York Times piece, which said that the woman who was the alleged victim of Kavanaugh's misconduct, did not talk to reporters, and that friends of the woman claim she does not remember the incident. Can you describe for us how you evaluate the evidence in the public domain of Kavanaugh's misconduct? And would you prioritize impeachment of Kavanaugh after the 2020 elections if you're elected to the Senate? So I think we need to dial this to a little bit of a different level, right? This is a question of right and wrong, and whether or not a man who now has a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court, whether or not he had a thorough vetting in the confirmation process, particularly in the Senate with the body charged with advice and consent. You know, I think the what I've said publicly on Sunday and what I still believe and what I think a lot of Americans believe is that there wasn't a proper process. There wasn't a thorough investigation. There were corroborating witnesses. There were additional incidents reported. There were um, elected officials in the federal government who asked for further investigation and information. And none of that was vetted properly. This guy was rammed through the process at a federal level. And we're now unfortunately, dealing with the consequences of that decision. I think this isn't just about the Supreme Court. This is about the entire judiciary, Um, be whether it's court packing or whether it's Supreme Court justices, the entire judiciary is being remade by President Trump. Um, Decades of established process are being in confirmation, are being overturned in the process. Um, To me, 
it's one of the strongest arguments for why it's essential Democrats retake control of the U.S. Senate. So, I, look, I think that these are serious allegations against Justice Kavanaugh. They should have been properly investigated at the time of his confirmation hearing. The federal government, for whatever reasons, failed to do that. And I think these are conversations that still need to be had as a result. But this is a much bigger question than just about Justice Kavanaugh. This is about the role of the Senate uh, and, and the role of the federal government and having and maintaining an independent judiciary. But when I get to the Senate, my priorities are very straightforward. My priorities are going to be health care, overturning Citizens United, getting money out of politics, voting rights and election security, and making sure your family's economic security is assured. Those are my priorities, and that has not changed. So we've covered a lot of ground in this interview today, but are there any other issues that we didn't touch on that you'd like to talk about before we go? The only other thing that I'd like to talk about is voter suppression here in Georgia, uh, you know, election security issues. It's yet again an example of where I feel Democrats in the House and around the country are doing the work, carrying the water. And meanwhile, Mitch McConnell's refusing to acknowledge there's even a problem. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it is essential that Americans have absolute confidence in their election systems. It is essential that Americans know at the very core of their being that they have the same right to vote as everyone else in the country who's eligible to vote. And right now, we can't say either one of those things. And it's because of the Republicans. So uh, for me, this is, uh, this is a paramount issue. And I think Stacey Abrams right now is doing some of the best work in the country on this issue. I think she's spot on to target the foundation of our democracy. I mean, look, you don't have self-governance if you don't have the right to vote freely and have your vote counted accurately. So that's the only other issue I would bring up. I think election security and protecting us from foreign interference, ensuring the physical systems on which we vote are secured and not hackable, um, and making sure that we have a full restoration of the Voting Rights Act, particularly for the uh, you know us down here in the South. It's been devastating. There was a report out, I think, last week thousand polling places have closed across the South since they weakened the Voting Rights Act. It's devastating. I guarantee you a disproportionate number of those polling places are in marginalized communities, whether that's poor people or whether that's communities of color. It's devastating to the idea that this is an equal opportunity equal rights, equal protection under the law of democracy. And it needs to be fixed. Well, Sarah, we appreciate you joining the podcast and covering so much ground with us today. If listeners want to learn more about your campaign for the Senate, how can they do that? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Um, you can go to our website at www.sarahforgeorgia.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-F-O-R-G-E-O-R-G-I-A.com, sarahforgeorgia.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at, at Sarah Riggs Amico. And we're on Instagram, I think at Sarah for Georgia and Facebook the same. So we'd love for folks to come in, follow along 
and have discussions, right? The, the best part about going out and running for office, particularly statewide, is getting to engage with the amazing people of Georgia on the issues that matter most to our families. And that kind of interaction is always welcome for us. So I hope people will follow along and join the conversation. All right. Well, Sarah Riggs Amico is a candidate for the U.S. Senate. She's in that Democratic primary where the winner will take on Senator David Perdue. Sarah, thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.